This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's top shelf panel, returning to the roundup is politicology veteran Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, good morning. It's always great to see you. Good morning. Great panel today. This is going to be fun. Going to be very fun. Returning to politicology is former Congressman Steve Israel, who served 16 years in Congress and during some of that time was chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, or the DTRIP, as we sometimes call it. He is currently the head of Cornell University's nonpartisan Institute of Politics and Global Affairs in New York City. Congressman, big welcome back and thank you for making the time. Ron, thanks so much. The weather at USC is much nicer than the weather in Ithaca, where Cornell (laughs) University is based. And making his politicology debut, the one and only Chuck Rocha. Chuck advised on both of Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns, and he is the first Latino to run a presidential campaign. He's also the founder and president of Solidarity Strategies, one of the most successful minority-owned political consulting firms in the country. Chuck, thank you for being here, and welcome to Politicology. It's good to be here. On this week's Roundup, Mike's editorial in the New York Times about Latino voters, an update on the war in Ukraine, how Ukraine is exploiting Putin's fears, Disney employees' protests over the lack of corporate response to Florida's Don't Say Gay law, and then when we move over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about what might end up being the biggest factor in the November elections. Politicology Plus is a private ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and discussions and strategy sessions you won't find anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology Show in that app and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can create an account over at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, Mike, you wrote an essay published in the New York Times earlier this week, which I believe they invited you to write, titled, While Democrats Debate Latinx, Latinos Head to the GOP. And to get the most out of this discussion, I'd suggest our listeners pause the show right now and follow the link in the notes to read it first. But in this piece, you highlighted the shift of Latino voters toward the Republican Party. And I'd love for you to set the table by just laying out what you're seeing as the causes of this shift. Yeah, thanks, Ron. And and again, it was uh, great to be asked to to write something on an issue that's so topical. Uh, first things first is I'm not one of those people that just is kind of jumping on the Latinx, you know, uh, into that into that discussion. I don't like the term. I don't use the term, but I don't lose sleep about it at night. And I think that most Latinos are probably in that space as well. The, the challenge is it, like so many other uh, issues that we deal with in the middle of this culture war. Um, are helping to increasingly see a slide away from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party uh, by Latino voters, this rapidly growing demographic uh, in the country, the fastest growing segment of the electorate. And I think it's important that we talk about it that way. It's not that the Republicans are doing anything right. They're winning this vote despite themselves. And the Democrats are losing this vote not necessarily because they are... are um, angering 
uh, Latinos. It's just there's this sort of alienation that is happening, and it's really a function of the split in this country between college-educated voters, which are rapidly, rapidly consolidating under the Democratic banner, and non-college-educated voters, which are rapidly consolidating under the Republican banner. And if you look at it as uh, the Hispanic electorate, which we have always said is not monolithic, and there's all these nuances, and, and there's truth to that, the one common, common bond that they we as a community do all have is we don't have very high college education rates. And as a, as a result, we enter the working class and we are the future of the blue collar working class. We called ourselves essential workers during the pandemic. And there is an affinity, a growing affinity, especially for second and third generation Latinos towards the Republican Party on economic populism, on that side of the culture war. Democrats are still winning 60-40 amongst Hispanics, but the gap is closing and it will, it will continue to close, as I've been saying for, for many, many years, as Latinos become more acculturated into the overall mainstream of the population and into the overall segment of the electorate. We have to remember 65% of all of the voters in America do not have a college degree. It, it, it is the most sizable segment of the electorate, and Latinos are quickly backfilling uh, that. And so there are, there are cultural components. Um, I'm also convinced that this is not a swing demographic. Russ, Russ Dowdhat at the at New York Times has said this is the new swing vote, and there's kind of this new DC attention after you know people like Chuck and I have been talking about this for 30 years. People are waking up and going, "Oh my God! Like there's these Latino voters we need to start talking about." And um, the truth is of the matter is this: this demographic, this Latino vote, is starting to behave not terribly unlike other rapidly assimilating, economically assimilating ethnic groups of the past. And that's the distinction. The Democratic Party too often has this orthodoxy that if you are non-white, that there's a, a certain level of oppression gauge that they need to respond to and speak to you at. What, you know, what, how do we talk to you? What can government do for you? How do we approach you in a way that helps you get beyond this oppression that you have clearly faced? And Latinos aren't, like I said, they're not offended by that. It's just not a relatable experience. And so both parties are very much not doing anything right, but they're also not doing anything terribly wrong. And what that's leaving is this overall really, really rapidly growing segment of the electorate up for grabs, one, but two, beginning to take on the overall characteristics of the dominant electorate. And again, it sounds a little bit you know, unconventional, but I think that there's you know, decades of data now to suggest that Latinos, Hispanics are following the educational divide that has also created a cultural divide, incidentally, in this country. And when we start to look at it that way, I think the light kind of goes on. People go, oh, aha, that does make sense. There is a way to culturally appeal to this, this rapidly growing demographic. But there's also this very significant education gap that the Democratic Party is going to have to adjust if it wants to be competitive more towards its working class roots and away from its sort of um, cultural emphasis and cultural focus that is a result of the dominance that it has with college-educated, particularly coastal voters. Okay, so Chuck, let's talk about adjustment, right? Uh, Mike mentioned economic populism. Your work on Bernie Sanders' uh, enormous grassroots movement was characterized by economic populism. The campaign was really effective, I would argue, partly because of our dangerously wide and our growing wealth gap. I'd love to know how you think Democrats should hone their messaging specifically to blue-collar Latinos, but also more broadly to make up some of the ground that they've lost with working-class voters. Well, part of it is the message and part of it is the effort. Me and Mike talk about this a lot on our podcast, is that there is a piece of this that is rooted in the message. And me and Mike like to debate over this. I will push back and say half of the problem, though, is just showing up. People want to credit Republicans for trying to recreate the wheel here. And all they've done differently in the last 10 years is just show up. They've done a half-assed job at what they're doing and still made inroads. Even Mike, a registered Republican, would agree with that. Uh, me as a registered Democrat who have voted Democrat for 30 years say that 
part of this is going back, and Mike was really good about explaining the working class part of this, which I think, in my humble opinion, is the is the root of the problem and why they are the new Reagan Democrats. But I take a step back when I explain this and say what we did with Bernie that was very different. A, there was a Latino in the room having budget authority, which was me. So it never got cut. We started early, often expanded a target range, and then went in and created a narrative because we were there early enough to just talk about more than what the pollster said was the top three issues. We had a long courtship with these Latinos and had a long time to introduce an old man from Vermont who was a democratic socialist, for God's sakes, in a place like Nevada that you wouldn't think would automatically gravitate to that kind of a politician. Well, it's because we started eight months in advance and I started with telling his story about his immigrant father coming to this country country, not having any money, not knowing the language. Hell, that's my ancestor's story. That's Mike Madrid's ancestor's story. Then I started talking about issues. Then I built a ground operation. But at its core, it was because I was there and a hundred other Latino senior staff that made sure that that implementation was done in a culturally competent way and that we relayed the issues that now we talk about. And then we layered in the issues of leaning into that working class narrative that I think is the the downfall of all current Democrats and the way that we run our campaigns, because we've walked away from where we were in 1989 when I joined the party, when I was an officer at a local union in East Texas, when the local union president said, Chuck, we're all Democrats here because the Democrats are with the workers and the Republicans are with the supervisors. And that has stayed with me for 32 years. And we've kind of, when's the last time you've seen a Democrat run a campaign on that message? And because of that, you start losing Latinos who are coming of age quick. And so it's this slow burn that because of people like Barack Obama or Donald Trump, you see these spikes. So, Steve, I'm hoping you can synthesize a lot of this for us because, you know, the most immediate reason uh, Democrats need to be and now are uh, concerned about this shift and not just the, the shift among Latinos that Mike is describing but also the working class versus white collar uh, shift between the two parties is the midterm election now 220 something days away and as you have I, you and I have discussed on the show before your role as leader of the entire democratic campaign operation uh, meant making decisions based on what really matters not a single seat but the entire balance of power the guy who now has your old job uh, congressman Sean Patrick Maloney said last week uh, quote the problem isn't the voters the problem is us end quote what does that mean to you and how are you thinking about how Democrats should manage the midterm elections, whether it's the approach or the message uh, or something else? Well, Ron, last week I actually had lunch with the, the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, and, and talked about exactly what he said. Uh, there is a, a clear problem. Uh, I, don't, I, I do not believe that the Republicans have figured out their problems. Uh, and the Democrats need to figure out why uh, they are uh, witnessing an eroding share uh, of the Hispanic vote. I, I will tell you that Mike's piece uh, received a, a heck of a lot of attention at DCCC. I suspect it received a lot of attention at the National Republican Campaign Committee, although I wouldn't know for sure because they don't invite me to the meetings. I was with a bunch of donors, of Democratic donors, uh, just uh, this week in New York City, and uh, it was the subject of the buzz. Uh, and validated entirely by the numbers. President Obama received, I think, about over 70% of the Hispanic vote uh, in, uh, in 2012. Uh, Hillary uh, received, I think, a mid-60s. Uh, Mike would know for sure. President Biden, I don't think he, I don't think he penetrated 59. 60%. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is something happening. Now, this is Mike's, Mike's theory, which I believe is validated by past events, will be especially validated by the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, four of the most competitive House seats in the entire battlefield uh, will have Hispanic voting populations of nearly 40 percent, uh, California, Texas, New Mexico, and Colorado. Those are battleground seats in battleground states. And if Democrats have any hope of clinging to this very, very slender majority, those are going to be, that. those are the fronts in, in this battle. And if Democrats can't figure out with all the respect and love I have for them, if they can't figure out how to message, to Chuck's point, to that share of the electorate in those states, uh, it's, it's going to be problematic. Now, one of the things we've learned, I'll make a final point on this, we saw this coming. 
when I chaired the DCCC. In 2015, we convened uh, some focus groups uh, to understand why we were receiving anecdotal evidence from members and candidates uh, in largely Hispanic districts that, you know, something was slipping, something just didn't feel right. And so we did focus groups and we learned a lot from those focus groups. One was that Hispanic voters felt that um, we were not understanding them by believing that at every single dinnertime conversation, all they talked about was the Bipartisan Immigration Reform Act. Right. They, they, you know, their, their, their view was, you know, there are other issues. We don't we're, we, we may we're we're not disinterested in it. We think the Democrats may be right on it, but we're worried about gas and groceries and jobs and wages. And we want a party. And this goes back to Chuck's point. We want a party who's going to address those issues and not put us in a kind of a stovepipe of all we have to talk about is, 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 is Republican racism uh, and their obstinance on immigration reform, and 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 we'll get them. Uh, and I think the most um, uh, final point on this, the most important thing I can t- share with you from my my lunch with Sean Patrick Maloney on this very topic was whether it's Hispanic voters, uh, no matter what segment of the electorate it is, Democrats need to talk about the two G's: gas and groceries mm. in this midterm election, mm. and that opens the door to an abundance of other issues. Yeah, big time, particularly inflation, which we're going to mm-hmm. talk about in our in our plus segment today. Mike, uh, since it's your piece, your segment, I want to give you some opportunity for closing comments here about, particularly about the comments we get from listeners about the education gap between college educated and non college educated voters, because that is a big portion of of this uh, of this phenomenon. Can you explain what correlation we're seeing between education level and voting patterns? Yeah, there's a number of dynamics, and again, they're really based off of some really, in my estimation, very interesting demographic shifts. We're all, I think, very familiar with the fact that most 90% of the states and most counties have basically isolated themselves along partisan lines. So there is very much a rural-urban-suburban divide between Republicans and Democrats, and there is also very much this education divide, which is isolating Republicans and Democrats and what's really happening is, is, is based on this concept called The Big Sort, which was a book written about a decade ago by a professor at UT Austin that was saying that people were self-selecting and choosing to not only be in their own social media bubbles, but they were actually choosing geographically to live in neighborhoods of like-minded people. And if you look at America today, um, it, it's actually quite a segregated place with few, with few exceptions. And that is because people have, at least upper income people, have the ability, the mobility to choose the life within which they live. And it's eroding a lot of our social discourse because people are no longer in neighborhoods where you have to live with people with different opinions to kind of get along. People are literally choosing to live in areas and be on social media platforms and use these algorithms lead us into these conversations where we're we're basically hearing uh, more affirmations amongst ourselves. And I know this is, again, a little bit too wonky, <laughs> but, it, but, but it gets back to this, this idea of, of who Hispanics are. And on one side, there's this view that Hispanics are basically an aggrieved racial minority, right, because they're not white. So let's talk to Hispanics like that. That's kind of the American left. On the American right, there's this also overcharacterization that, oh, Hispanics are Catholic and they're anti-abortion and they all go to church on Sunday and they're all very entrepreneurial and they're really Republicans. They just don't know it yet. I, that's just as, that's very condescending, <laughs> by the way. It's extraordinarily condescending. What is happening, again, is you have this group in the middle in a country that has always, for 250 years, been stuck in this frame of racial discourse between black and white, literally black and white, because of our original sin. You have this emergent group in the middle, which is brown, right? It's kind of a mix of both. There is a cultural understanding of what oppression means and alienation means, and that we have more often than not, experienced some of these concerns. And we can talk about that with policing, for example. We could talk about that with education, uh, attainment and transparency, and uh, you know, uh, result-oriented focused education programs with our students. But at the same time, that is not the construct through which we view our, our world. And, and I think Congressman Israel said it very well. 
the vast, vast, vast majority of Latino voters are not laying awake at night worried about immigration reform. But that too often has become the caricature of what the Hispanic issue is. And the truth is that's been promulgated by a lot of Latino politicians. It's absolutely been promulgated by the media. And it's just an easy narrative to understand or characterize what is happening with this vote in saying, oh, they're farm workers. Oh, they're illegal. They're concerned about illegal aliens. Oh, they're worried about border issues. And while that is all true, those are not the dominant issues which are driving the this part of the electorate. What is, as we have learned for over the past 30, 40 years, because they've been telling us this in polling, is it's education, it's jobs, it's the economy. And when neither party is understanding that or appreciating that for their own different reasons, left to its own devices, this group is is moving away from being this voting block, which it was assumed that was going to happen. A lot of Democrats simply believed the more Hispanic a, a district became, the more Democrat it would become, largely because that's what happened in California over the last 20 years. That's a different segment that Chuck and I talk on the Latino Vote podcast about those real deep nuances that we just launched. But the truth of the matter is Latinos are beginning to take on the characteristics of the overall electorate. And so this education divide creates a very significant numeric mathematical problem for the Democratic Party if it cannot get back to its FDR roots. Uh, you know, as a young Hispanic, I was born in a Democratic, you know, household. My my parents were all Democrats, and and my I, mean, I was the only Republican, and and it was it was it was characterized to me as the Democratic Party was the party of the working man, and I think for up for for a very long time it it was that. But the attacks in the 1980s, and again, we're, I, I call this the new Reagan Democrat because it's very instructive for Democrats to understand what is happening here if you look at it through that lens. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan used to call the Democrats San Francisco liberals. Now, there was some negative connotations that he was obviously driving with that, with that vernacular, but he was also characterizing a progressive value system that was not selling anywhere outside of these liberal bastions. That's the same attack as these cultural elite things that we're hearing. Or if you watch Fox News and watch the attacks on critical race theory or the transgender issues or or defunding the police or the attacks on big cities, it's all designed to say this is not who we are as Americans culturally. And when you cannot relate to that, you become afraid of that. And that fear is what Fox News has fed into. And again, a lot of the responses I get, the critiques from from people who are very well-meaning to to what I'm arguing is, how can your people vote for somebody who wants to put your kids in cages? And my response is, how can your people vote for, for people who want to put kids in cages, right? It's the same answer. So, so don't look more deeper than that. Is start speaking to people where they're at. Of course, most Hispanics don't have you know, an affinity to put kids in cages, but most Hispanics also have to pay the rent on Friday. So let's start talking about stuff that's going to help them pay the rent. Gets back to the groceries and gas issue that the congressman was saying. So that's essentially the crux of the piece. That's kind of what I'm trying to argue. Uh, Fundamentally, if Democrats can't get back to a blue-collar position beyond sort of strong labor ties for purely political reasons, they're going to continue to lose as, as this split this divide in America along educational lines um, gets bigger and bigger. Okay, let's switch gears right after this. On Wednesday, Bloomberg News reported that Russian climate envoy Anatoly Chubayas stepped down from his role in Putin's government and left the country. He became the highest-ranking Kremlin official to resign due to the invasion. Chubayas was one of the only 1990s-era reformers who remained in Putin's government. Uh, But fun fact, he was actually the person who gave Putin his first job in the Kremlin, and he had remained close to Putin, that is, until Tuesday. Also on Wednesday, NATO released estimates that up to 40,000 Russian troops have been killed, injured, captured, or gone missing in the first month of the war. Between 7,000 and 15,000 troops have died 
According to a Pentagon official who spoke to CNBC, some Russian troops have been taken out of the fight due to frostbite. There are also reports of Russian troops leaving armored vehicles and walking off uh, into the woods due to low morale. These reports are coming days after Ukrainian intelligence reported that a group of influential, put that in air quotes, individuals in Russia have hatched a plan to poison Vladimir Putin and plan to install the director of the Federal Security Service as his replacement. And this story reminds me of an ad we made at the Lincoln Project uh, in 2020 called Whispers about all the members of the Trump campaign and family who were leaking and talking about Trump behind his back, and it worked. And so I just wonder how each of you are thinking about Ukraine stoking Putin's paranoia and his fears of being attacked by his own in what is increasingly an information war, uh, just as much as this is a hot war. Uh, Steve, do you want to lead off? Sure, a few points. First, I'm told by folks in the uh, intel community uh, that Putin is legitimately concerned, uh, highly paranoid uh, about attempts on his life. Uh, He wakes up in the morning thinking that uh, somebody's going to try and take him out, and he goes to bed at night thinking that somebody's going to try and take him out, uh, and he has built a security apparatus around him to protect against it. Uh, This is a, uh, not not just, he's a paranoid psychotic, uh, and, and this becomes very dangerous. He has made his paranoia uh, and his uh, uh, messiah complex has had the result of a series of calamitous miscalculations on his part. And and we shouldn't uh, just uh, be casual about this. We really need to understand and take stock of the fact that he saw a weak and divided America. He saw the exit from Afghanistan uh, and believed that he could further split the American people. His decisions have uh, had the result of actually unifying the American people with respect to Ukraine. And you could see it for yourself during President Biden's State of the Union address when the Ukrainian ambassador, somebody who most members of Congress probably would not have known a year ago, uh, received a standing ovation on both sides of the aisle. He thought that he could undermine NATO. He has strengthened it uh, beyond what anybody would have uh, imagined. He thought he would consolidate his image on the world stage. He is now largely alone, marginalized, and isolated. Uh, He thought he could sweep up quickly in Ukraine. He has been completely bogged down. Having said all of that, having taken stock of the blunderous, calamitous miscalculations uh, he has made, the one thing I keep hearing is that He's prepared to continue to make miscalculations. Uh, he, he is not thinking clearly. He is not thinking rationally. Uh, he believes he's cornered. Uh, and he rejects rational considerations from his own people, uh, believing in his own unquestioned truths. That creates a very, very frightening scenario. And that is why, actually, I think Joe Biden deserves a heck of a lot of credit of not reacting to Putin's miscalculations, because a reaction to Putin's miscalculations has a very high probability of miscalculating into a third world war. And so I think the Biden policy actually has been prudent. It has been strong uh, and uh, needs to continue. Chuck, I'm really curious about what you make of the uh, public polling around um, around the war. And, and in particular, the numbers, um, you know, the, the navigator data that I looked at a week ago or so, uh, showed that opposition to American intervention, uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine, um, was lowest and softest among the youngest cohort that they surveyed, the 30 and under specifically. Um, I just, I just wonder what you make about, about, um, about that with the backdrop of this as Molly McHugh, our national security um, uh, frequent uh, guest on Politicology, um, argues this is the first time that those voters have ever seen an example of a just war. Um, and and you know, I'm I'm a I'm a millennial, barely make the cut, a millennial. I'm, I'm 38, and every military conflict that I've witnessed in my life has been complicated, right? To say the least, not, not as straightforward and, you know, making no moral uh, judgments one way or the other on any of the uh, wars. Um, this is the first time it's very, very clear, right and wrong. And, and I wonder what you make of that and how, how you see that shifting, um, shifting politics. 
You know, Ron, I think you hit on what's the most important part. And I think back on last week, uh, me and my fiance uh, hosted the Ukrainian ambassador here in D.C., and my firm was the host of our fundraiser for the foundation. Uh, We had all these congressmen and senators there, you know, and it was really driven. And this is my point, not Chuck Rocha giving money and not people trying to help out. Lots of people are helping out. What I did was so minimal. But my fiance, who is a black woman here in D.C., who is younger than you, Ron, who this every day takes a different kind of toll on her. And it's a reminder to me that I've lived through way more than she has. She's considerably younger than me. She is tied into, she's not in politics, hence why we're getting married. Uh, and But she's the, one of the smartest women I've ever known. But she's young and cares about her city. She was born and raised in D.C. She's part of her neighborhood association. So she, to me, is my living focus group, uh, along with my son. And, you know, the way that they interact with this war is just different. You know, if you follow Mike Madrid on Twitter, you know, Mike has really been talking about the hope and the freedom that uh, Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. And I think that that's, to your point in the polling, Ron, is that you're seeing this in a younger generation who's never seen this. Now, as just a raw political professional who does this for a living, I've spent my lifetime trying to figure out what motivates young people to vote and why they don't vote mm-hmm. at the same rate. And and they show up in these rallies and they're keyboard warriors and they're woke and they are virtuous and they're all the things. But when it comes to election day, they ain't nowhere to be found many, many times. And that's not a blanket yeah. statement for everybody, but we're all giggling because we've all had because those we know same it's true. Like, <laughs> right. Because we've all tried to figure that out. And I work for Bernie Sanders, who young people love. Right. And, and even then, they didn't show up at the rate we thought they would show up, right? And if you can't do it with Bernie Sanders, then the rest of you Democrats got a long way to go. So I think what you're talking about cuts at an emotion that me and Mike talk about and we'll talk more about on the Latino podcast is we've left emotion out of politics. We have taken emotion out a lot of times and we listen to these bland consultants and, and posters and we run the same garbage on TV with a voiceover actor in the same picture. You know, I've been doing campaigns going back to Ann Richards in Texas. This ain't my first rodeo. We've got to get back to emotions and what these young professionals and young people are living through, Ron, to your point, is emotion of war. Like you think back to the 60s and back when Steve and everybody was, they had these young people in the streets fighting against the Vietnam War. There was a reason for that, right? I work for Vote Vets, the largest veterans organization on the left that does cutting edge ads that you all know about because it's led by somebody that's still in the army, John Soltz, who's lived three tours, right? That's why (laughs) they're a good group of people doing this work. So I think the emotional part is what a lot of people are missing that you're going to see in this election. Mike, you and I have talked a lot about this in particular with Molly, um, and I, I wonder what you think about this, uh, you know, the, the comparison I made with the Lincoln Project Whispers ad, which we both remember very well, and, 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 and Ukraine's ability to wage this kind of information warfare, which to me seems very sophisticated, uh, especially given the way, you know, young people are watching this unfold primarily on TikTok, right? Not even Instagram. They're watching it mostly on TikTok, which just is, is genius to me in, in the way they're executing this. So anyway, how, how are you think about this fear as analogous to what Trump experienced during the 2020 campaign. And, you know, it, it, it ultimately worked against Trump. Do you think that this is the, the, the most effective way to get at a strong man like Putin? Yeah, a couple things. Yeah, I remember a month ago, I was saying this is going to be the first war we watch on Twitter, which tells you, one, how old I am. But two, um, you, you know, uh, this, is, this is a TikTok war, right? Uh, young people are watching this. And they are having the reactions that Chuck mentioned. Um, I also am not convinced that it's just the Ukrainians doing this, right? This is an incredibly Mm. sophisticated operation that began before the invasion. I mean, to think that we don't have assets helping drive this is crazy. Of course we do, right? There's some, this is an incredibly well run drill. And um, I'm not saying that they can't do it themselves, but I think most. You able-bodied Ukrainians with a skill set in any area are probably literally taking up arms and doing what they can to effectuate change on the ground. Of course, they're also helping with the with the communication uh, combat that's going on, which kind of I think gets to your point, and that is this: we 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 have not understood this completely yet, but I think we're going to in the coming weeks and months. Uh, communications warfare, cyber warfare, is a new battlefield in this new century. And we have been at war since at least 2016 with the Russians 
who launched a, a, a preemptive information data strike on our elections in 2016. This war has been going, been being waged. This misinformation war, the cyber war, um, has been going on for a number of years. It just doesn't look like the black and white history channel, you know, World War II mm-hmm. things that we think of of as war. And that's affecting people. It's affecting young people. And I think that there's a, a deep concern about it, um, in large part because young people are far more discerning about the junk that they see on social media because they've grown up with it in a very sophisticated way. They're a lot less uh, amenable to taking things at face value than a lot of their grandparents are, who you can just kind of babysit with Fox News all day. And 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 the truth is, we have been doing that with the old people in our in our in our society. Mm-hmm. We just kind of sit them in front of cable news, get them hopped up on a Fox News IV drip of misinformation, and voila, you start to see some of the the you know electoral outcomes that you see. That's very very different than what you are seeing with young people who who have a who have grown up with a much more discerning palette for information, what's to believe, how to consume it, what to share, how to share, why to share, and how to activate and mobilize based on that. So that's the third point. And the fourth and last one, which is probably what your question was, which is, um, <laughs> sorry, this is that Mike Madrid wind up. The, 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 fourth, the fourth is, I think that these, the, this audience of one strategy that the Lincoln Project was extraordinarily successful with can absolutely be used as a tool against Putin, not just against Putin, but against authoritarians generally. Being an authoritarian, being a dictator, it's a very lonely life, right? As the congressman mentioned, <laughs> at some point in that in your run, if you if you live long enough to make it, you do start to get, I'm sure, very paranoid about who's trying to kill you, what kind of palace intrigue is going to happen to you that day, and whether you're safe laying your head down to sleep at night. It's not. It's not a. You know. It's not the. It's not the best lifestyle for your blood pressure. Right. And, and that that opening really does allow for the types of communications to create a sense of paranoia. The danger is it's these are very powerful people who have a finger on the on the button that can respond in a way that can wipe out millions of people. And you simply do not know until you know whether or not they're willing to do that type of uh, take that type of a step, um, because my guess is a, a malignant narcissist, which I think is probably a requisite characteristic of being an authoritarian, of being a dictator, also says, well, if, if I'm not around anyway, the world doesn't really exist anyway because it's my world, so who cares? And that's the danger, right, is you can push these people uh, as we we did with Donald Trump very effectively. But even when that was going on, the back of my mind, I was thinking when these ads were going to go up and we knew what the response was going to be with Donald Trump, there was always something in the back of my mind going, this guy's got the nuclear codes. Like the football is with him. You know, this, this, is, yeah. this is a dangerous individual because of the enormous, awesome power that he controls. And Putin has demonstrated just in the last, you know, month, he's willing to kill tens of thousands of innocent civilians because he thinks it's the right political move for him. And what's going to stop him from a regional nuclear strike in Poland? Um, what, what, I, I don't know what the answer to that. Nobody does. But my strong suspicion is the potentiality of losing power is probably one of those at the top of the checklist for him being willing to move on that kind, in that kind of a direction. We have to be very, very mindful of it. You know, what um, What fascinated me about the weeks and months prior to the invasion was the new use of Diplo Intel. There's been this uh, amazing fusion of diplomacy and intelligence. And think about uh, the, the revelations of specific Russian troop movements uh, that the White House would tweet. Uh, think about the tweeting uh, and leaking of orders from Putin to his top generals that we somehow intercepted and publicized on social media. Uh, think about when Putin would say, uh, I told my generals uh, to redeploy, to pull back. And almost immediately, uh, the uh, our government uh, released intelligence that proved that, no, he's lying and did it on social media. 
Mike is right. This this battle has largely been fought uh, on, on social media and the fusion of diplomacy and intelligence, which United States of America has led in, uh, is what helped unite NATO uh, and much of the rest of the world around us and did not allow Putin to divide us. This is a really good point. You know, Mike, when you mentioned malignant narcissism as a requisite pathology to become an autocratic uh, leader, essentially, um, I, I, just as a side note, I, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Carly Fiorina later last year, um, particularly about the importance of character and leadership as, as almost a lost measuring stick for, uh, for our leaders now in the context of electoral you know, victory. It's not something that we really look for, but it was in, in 2020. It was exactly what we we're looking for in Biden. Um, I just, I just want to set, maybe we should uh, link to that episode in the footnotes, because it seems to me that, especially as you noted, that this next century is going to be defined by the struggle against authoritarianism for democracy, for free people, and against uh, oppressive regimes. It seems prudent for us to have character high on the list uh, in the way we evaluate potential leaders here, not just everywhere, but here. Um, but one last, one last, uh, question to you, Steve, as we record, president Biden is currently in Brussels, uh, for an emergency meeting of NATO leaders. He's also going to be meeting with the G seven leaders, uh, and the European council before heading over to Poland, uh, to meet with its president. Is there anything we should be watching for as Biden is in Europe? What are you watching for? Yes, and this is actually a great segue uh, past the conversation that we just had. What I've, what I'm really watching uh, is this new European Democratic Resilience Initiative uh, that he's announcing at meetings with NATO, G7, and the EU. Uh, President Biden wants to obligate uh, about 320 million dollars uh, to support human rights defenders, uh, to support free press, to support anti-corruption initiatives. Uh, to support watchdogs and journalists who will tell the truth against this ons- this attack on democracy. A lot of the conversation has been about humanitarian relief, has been about uh, reinforcing NATO, uh, more troops, more missiles, more defensive systems. But this announcement that the president wants to uh, unite NATO in defending democracy in Europe, I think, is vitally important. Over the last week, Disney employees have organized a series of 15-minute daily walkouts that culminated in a full-day walkout on Tuesday over CEO Bob Chapik's response to Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. Chapik came under scrutiny earlier this month when he wrote that he and Disney's leadership unequivocally stand with LGBTQ plus employees, but did not take a public stand against the bill, saying that corporate statements undermine Uh, quote, more effective ways uh, to implement change. The pushback from staff at Disney was immediate. And by Wednesday, Chapik spoke out against the bill at Disney's annual shareholder meeting and said that his original statement didn't didn't quite get the job done, as he put it. Uh, That's according to CNN. ESPN, which Disney owns uh, most of, saw several of its broadcast teams go silent during their coverage of the NCAA women's basketball tournament, saying that they stand in solidarity and support with the Disney colleagues opposing the bill. Chapik's attempt to take a non-political stance was a notable departure from Disney's policy under former longtime CEO uh, Bob Iger. Back in 2019, uh, Georgia passed a law, um, a heartbeat law, that would have banned abortions at six weeks, and Iger was one of the first business leaders to condemn the bill. Despite Disney filming many of its Marvel films in Georgia, Iger said the studio... Uh, would find it very difficult to film in the state if the law took effect. He also praised President Biden's condemnation of the Florida bill in February. So, Mike, this is a trend we've been following closely, employees being able to pressure their employers to take a stand on social and political issues. Um, I'm wondering how you all think about this shift in the dynamic Particularly, you know, Mike, in the context that we've been talking about capitalism evolving and then, you know, Chuck, the you're a union guy, right? I wonder what you think about the influence that employees are now having outside of the vehicle of a union, inside corporate, um, corporate environments. So who wants to go first? 
Look again, I think this is this is an example of advocacy in this new century. And we've talked about it a lot, whether it was in response to the Voting Rights Act, whether it's been in response to, you know, gun control legislation. I've argued um, that the boycott doesn't work. That was a tool that worked effectively during the civil rights struggle in the 1960s because economies were regional. I've argued that, you know, it, uh, the more national movements were, that uh, they that the financial markets are no longer ways to respond. The, the way you get activism in this new era is through employees. And the value, people are increasingly, especially young people, will not work. Uh, for companies that do not reflect their values. And they certainly won't be a part of organizations that work diamet- that are diametrically opposed to their values. They're not going to commit their life, work, and energy to something that is working against them. This is yet another example. We're starting to see these examples happening almost weekly now. And this is an extremely significant one. And I think I don't know why some you know small smart consultant hasn't started wrapping their arms around this as an advocacy tool to drive change because increasingly it's happening with non-traditional companies, non-traditional industries, right? It's happening with entertainment, it's happening with high tech, it's happening with with new economy industries where people again this goes back to our education divide, right? People feel more empowered that they can take their assets with them because they're in their head and I'm not going to work for a company that is going to work against my values. System. I'm willing to spend my life in your company as an employee, not just for a paycheck, but because it actually is advancing what I believe that the world should be. And that is a pervasive ethos with younger people. And again, we're seeing it not just here with Disney, but we, we've seen it in Ukraine with what was happening with 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 um, with everybody from Elon Musk to to to, to Apple, you know, in, in giving technology to the Ukrainians or Airbnb, for example, that was opening up the opportunity to give money to Ukrainians simply by opening up an AT and T uh, an Airbnb account. These are the types of change which are going to keep moving the country and the globe further and further down the line. That is the new type of political activism, direct political action where people are going to feel empowered in a way that they have not in the last 20, 30, I would argue even 40 years ago. Boycotting a bus back in the day was the best thing that you could do to demonstrate your commitment and bring a busing company to its knees. That doesn't happen with corporations anymore, but the change is coming from within employees. And what you're going to see, I believe, very soon is a specialty in political consulting with firms directly messaging to the employees of specific companies, because we can absolutely do that now, to start organizing these types of protests and pushes for social and political change by the employee base demanding that its company do or not do certain things in the political arena I'm particularly excited about it because I think it's actually going to be extraordinarily impactful over the next few decades. And the fact that we're seeing it happening organically, um, literally week by week now on a wide range of issues, I think speaks very well for democratic institutions, democratic in this case with a small d, for democracy and for society and for people feeling actual ownership in the society that they're trying to change. Okay, Chuck, over to you. And then, Steve, I have a question about the small D democratic institutions. Go ahead, Chuck. Look, I think that I'm not sure which D I'm supposed to be using here because I never went to college. <laughs> so I'm not sure which context. But what I'll talk about is through organizing. Uh, yeah. And what I mean by what organizing is back in the day when a state legislature would do something stupid, we'd all organize to go vote those bums out. Let's go get rid of them. Well, for all of you wonky people that love listening to podcasts like this, you know as well as I know that 95% of every state rep and state senate district in America is gerrymandered to be a safe Democrat or a safe Republican. That makes them really not care if they upset some constituent. What if we go and we protest at their office? Well, knock yourself out because it ain't going to affect the damn election (laughs) because it's just too much squandered. I mean, to one side or the other. So what Mike is saying is important because there's a whole new part of organizing that Rashad Robinson and others have done within the progressive left that's centered around these corporations who by, in fact, support both sides of the aisle and are a conduit to lots of money. Now, you won't get a politician, no disrespect to Steve, but back in, if you want to get a politician's attention, start messing with his or her money. You can get their attention in that way. And, but also you could get their attention by messing 
messing with their votes. Well, you can't mess with their votes because it's gerrymandered. So if these corporations start messing with their money, which no donations to the politicians or worse, messing with the stock price of per se corporation. And then there's one thing that's nonpartisan in politics. When a stop drop, when a stock drops or when folks start losing money, it gets the attention of Democrats and Republicans because nobody wants to lose money. So this is where the organizing prowess comes in of why I think this is a really good idea. Mm. Okay. Hey, by the yeah. way, it's Steve. The only disrespect that Chuck showed to me during this podcast <laughs> was when he made reference to my sending people out on the streets in the 60s. <laughs> that is just true. Dude, the only streets I was out on in the 60s was hailing the ice cream man. <laughs> I'm much younger than it may appear to you, my friend. I just think everybody's old. Also, I think my Madrid's 70, 70 years old, just so we're clear, Steve. That's meant towards Mike hey, as well. Okay. You know what? Steve has more hair than both of you. So. He does. <laughs> this is true. So, Steve, here's, here's, my, here's my question to you. From where you sit at Cornell right now and the work you're doing there uh, at, their, at their Institute of Politics, right? Um, I wonder how this is coming up in, in, in the conversations, in the lectures, in the, in the classroom, um, because it, there's this juxtaposition with which, um, you know, part of which Chuck got at earlier, which is the, which is the, um, the low propensity of younger voters to vote in elections and now the sort of activism that we're seeing among, I would argue these are mostly 30 and under employees that are making big stands at corporations. And it seems to me, um, well, I want to know what you think about this. I think that younger voters don't have a lot of faith in their ability to move the needle with traditional democratic institutions like voting, right? Like our, like the franchise. The system feels calcified and unresponsive to them. But their employer they have a lot more ability to make change in the real world there. And, and, and it's almost as if corporations are now playing a substitutive role for the democratic process in some way to these, to these voters. So anyway, I, I lay that at your feet and I'd love to hear how you think about that and, and, and if and whether and how that's coming up in your work at Cornell. I think that you are spot on. And I know that Mike teaches at USC. Uh, I, I teach a, a course a semester a year uh, at Cornell. And what I've noticed, I'm curious about Mike's experience, is that, yeah, uh, students, younger people have, have almost given up on electoral politics. They know to Chuck's point, or they believe to Chuck's point, the fix is in. You know? uh, and even if I can join a campaign and get somebody elected, that new person in Congress is not going to be able to beat the system. Mm. It's cooked already. And so they're finding new creative outlets. They're finding it in, on campus. Uh, campuses are becoming far more democratized. They're finding it in corporate accountability. They're finding new avenues where they believe that they can make small d democratic impact uh, and learning that, in fact, it is fulfilling. Now, uh, I hope that uh, at a certain point, they will reinvest in electoral politics because as a former congressman, I believe that, you know, that is, you know, making sure that democracy uh, is accountable uh, in our political institutions is vitally important. So I hope that they re-engage in electoral politics. And this is not to say that, you know, they're, they're uh, abandoning it completely. I do believe that they are reprioritizing their activities, engagement, and engagement in small D democratic institutions. Mike, any, any last thoughts? No, I, that, I see that too. I will say I'm very optimistic about working with young people in the classroom. I actually love it because of what Steve was saying, my hope is that they will come back to electoral politics too, but it's important to understand they, they are very committed to change. They're very committed to this world. Mm -hmm. They simply see more efficient and better ways to accomplish what they're doing than going through these traditional routes. I can't say that I blame them, but the hope is that they'll come and work to, 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 to reinvigorate and reform small-D democratic institutions and democracy generally. Um, but I, I'm very, very hopeful in the way that they see the view, the, the world, and it's not to suggest that they're not engaged. I think they're probably more engaged than my generation was. I think that's what the congressman's saying, too. All right. Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you are watching under the radar. Chuck, what do you have for us? You know, one of the things that, uh, and Steve brought this up earlier when he said there were four districts that are out there that are 
uh, over 40% Latino population that are true marginal seats. There's actually six of them now after we finish redistricting in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, but the seats in Texas, Colorado, and California that he mentioned, along with a new seat in the south of New Mexico that the Democratic legislature has made more Democratic. So now it's a toss-up. I tell you all of this to say the thing that really is bothering me, and I've been talking a lot to Mike about this, is that as you've seen diversity in Congress rise, you've seen diversity in our Supreme Court with what we're watching today with confirmation here for the first black woman who could sit on our Supreme Court. You see diversity and inclusion really being something that people are leaning into. There's one place that I think will affect our politics that nobody's talking about, and that's the lack of diversity at the professional political level, because this is such an insular game and such a game of relationships. And because Latinos are a newer immigrant population, there's no Latino operatives that are working at the most senior level of politics. So what you lose is a lack of cultural competency when the first time in American history, to Steve's point, there are more marginal seats than ever. And for all you wonky wonks back home, that means that all the black and brown seats, boys and girls, back in the day were full of black and brown people and they were 90% Democrats. There were no marginal Latino seats except for Texas 23 for two generations. These seats are a reflection of the new growth of our population. But what we're relying on at the party committees, the super PACs, and at the campaigns are the same consultants and groups of folks who are well-intentioned, who want to do the right thing, but aren't from the community who knew the cultural nuances where the top 50 races by Democrats last year had one Latino manager of the top 50 races and zero Latino-owned. Uh, media firms. So when you lose us sitting at the table, you lose some of the concepts of the community. When folks come to me all the time and talk about the Bernie Sanders stuff and the Latino thing, I'm quick to say, Chuck Rocha ran the whole campaign. I wasn't in charge of the Latino outreach. I just made sure it was fully funded and protected it, right? This is what needs to happen in more congressional races. We've created that in my firm. There's other new emerging firms that are doing great stuff. And a lot of the party committees now at the committees are doing great work around diversity and inclusion. But once you get out to the races, I really think this will be the most underreported thing is that we are relying on folks who don't know anything about these voters to try to get these voters to go out and vote. Steve, what are you watching? I'm watching a small story with uh, a big reflection, and that is that uh, this week the Supreme Court uh, sent back a, a case on legislative maps uh, to a Wisconsin state uh, court, siding with uh, the Republican Wisconsin Republicans. But this is what's really significant. It didn't block the congressional maps. And this is a really important and overlooked story in this entire cycle. The pundits were dead wrong on redistricting from day one. I would get so frustrated listening to these pundits say, well, about how the Democrats were going to lose 15, 20, 30 seats just because of redistricting, just because of that. Well, in the lunch that I had last week with Sean Patrick Maloney, when we went methodically through the map, it is actually the Republicans who are down a net of five seats as a result of redistricting. And there are only a few more states that uh, have to finalize those maps. That will be done in the next few weeks. That will finalize and crystallize the battlefield. The pundits were wrong. It's reflected in this Supreme Court decision. It upends the state legislative maps, but it preserves the congressional maps. And that has been the story of redistricting throughout this entire cycle. And thank you for allowing me to vent the that's way I just great, did. Great. No, that's so a great true. story. That's, I've been watching the same so thing. True. It's it's so true. Um, Mike, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm watching an Axios story that just came out this morning, actually. More polling data. It's number season. It's kind of what I do. Um, it actually shows that inflation is having a larger bite amongst Latino voter perceptions than it is for non-Latinos. Surprise, surprise. So that means that there's yeah, very few ar few very few weapons left in the, kind of the arsenal here for for Democrats to use to kind of get some of those marginal seats that remain. There's still time to fix this problem, but the question remains again whether or not they will. Uh, I'll use this as an opportunity, Ron, to shamelessly plug kind of the Latino Vote podcast that Chuck and I launched just a few episodes ago to talk about these issues and the midterm specifically, talking about. The Latino vote. You can kind of find us wherever you find your politicology podcasts. But uh, that again means really that um, when the economy and culture are moving away from you, you you gotta you gotta be sober about this. You gotta you gotta set aside your preconceived notions. You gotta start listening. And if you want to hold on to power or expand the number of seats that you have, you're gonna have to understand that the battlefield has changed. That 
is a great segue to our Politicology Plus segment, which we're going to hop over to now and talk about all things inflation. Um, Steve, Mike, Chuck, before we do that and head over to the after party, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Congressman? Uh, you can uh, find me at, get ready for this, uh, it's just, you know what, just Google or Bing, there Cornell Institute of Politics is the easiast way of doing okay. it. These acad- academic URLs are impossible to find. That's true. <laughs> Bing or Google, Cornell Institute of Politics, or my brand new independent bookstore in Oyster Bay, Long Island, theodoresbooks.com. Cool. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Chuck, where can everybody find you? You find me on the Twitters at Chuck Roach, on the Instagram at Chuck underscore Roach. And I warn you, on the Instagram, there's a lot of workout video and grandkids. But I'm excited <laughs> about the weekend because this weekend, that beautiful, wonderful fiance of mine is going to get me on the tick and the talks, and I'm going to make some videos, and it's going to be epic. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Roach on TikTok. I can't wait. Mike, where are you? I'm on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.